Today, uh, we're finishing up our series called Monkey See, Monkey Do. All right? Monkey See, Monkey Do. I love the series. It's been so beneficial to me. And Matt has covered so much ground in the past three weeks, yeah? He's covered a lot of stuff on what it means to be an effective parent okay, and an influence for the next generation. And we covered it saying that even though this is a parenting series, this is for anybody who wants to be a great influence for the next generation, right? Which I hope that it's everybody in this room. It doesn't matter if you're 92 years old, you have an influence of the culture of the generations, right? Of people that you can influence. It doesn't matter if you're 15 years old, you still have an influence somehow, some way in you, all right? To influence the next generations to come. So again, this is not just for parents, but again, this is for those who want to hear to how we can build the generation to come for his kingdom. So every parent in here has the desire to see their children grow, right? Amen? Right? Every parent in, the, in here, everyone in here who wants to see the, ch- uh, the children of the church, right, grow into a person that they can be their best of. No parent ever says, eh, they can stay the same, right? They can stay the same. They, they, can, they, they can stay exactly the where, how, how they are right now. No, no parent ever says that. But as we all know, change and growth does not happen just by telling them what to do. A simple example is this. If you want your children to do the dishes, say amen, all the parents. Yes, all right. If you want your children to do your, do your dishes, you're not going to just tell them, hey, go do your dishes. Okay? You're going to teach them how to do dishes, and you're going to model for them that you are also doing the dishes, so therefore they should follow your example. If you don't teach them how to do the dishes, guess what? You're going to have to buy a new set of dishes almost every week, I can guarantee you. Okay? You're going to have to buy a new set of dishes. You have to teach them and model for them how to do the dishes. And this theme has been our foundation in, for this whole series, right? It's all about directing and modeling. And, and these, this is where our scripture comes from. First comes from Proverbs 22.6. Direct your children onto the right path, meaning that there is a wrong path, okay? So direct your children onto the right path. And when they are older, they will not leave it. Man, what a great verse. Okay, how about Psalm 78.4? It says, we will not hide these truths from our children. We will tell the next generation about the glorious deeds of the Lord, about his power and his mighty wonders. It's this idea that directing and teaching is important, right? Directing and teaching is important, but modeling is necessary. Modeling is necessary. You can't minimize the directing of your child. Even God had to give directions to the Israelites. If you look in the Old Testament, he gives in details of directions what the Israelites should do. I mean, look at just the story of Noah. He gave in detail of what the cubic should be, how big it should be. God didn't just say, hey, uh, go build a boat. No, he gave in direction. He gave st- specific directions. But he also gave the Israelites someone to model after. He always gave somebody to model after. And last week, Meg continued with what modeling is and, and how parents should use that modeling to discipline their child well and in a productive way. And he touched base upon that discipline is not about the now result. 
It's not about the, the result now. But it's about the result of the future, how your child grows up. Not only just your child, but how your grandchild grows up. That's what discipline is. And I love what Matt said. He said, we discipline to correct, don't punish for control. You know, as parents, we love to take control of everything, don't we? All right? Yes, we love to take control of everything. I, I don't, it's not just for teenage parents. I have an 18-month-old, okay? By 18 months, they start to understand everything that you're saying. Okay? They start to understand everything that you're saying. And uh, he doesn't like going to sleep. <laughs> I need my sleep. He doesn't like going to sleep. So my control, my selfish control will be to, for punishment, right? I'm going to take your toys away. I'm going to shut the door. And I'm going to just let you cry and forget you, right? That, that's my punishment, okay, to him. But I could discipline in a way that, all right, he doesn't want to go to sleep. Let me put you to bed. Let me tuck you in. And let me tell you in, in your language of you understanding why it is important for you to go to sleep on your own, in your bed, in your room. And then while all his tear is crying and, and just snot's coming out of his nose, and then I can close the door because I've told him already the, the, that's my discipline. He may not understand at the current moment, but that's my love of showing him. Maybe there's a part of me for my love for sleep too, but there's my love for showing him as well, okay? That's me disciplining him. You remember this? Discipline is love. Discipline with love. Discipline is love and discipline with love. Not for the immediate results that we want for control, but for what the future looks like for our children and for our grandchildren. You know, before, before we start, I want to I show you some phrases here that you might be familiar with. Always tell the truth. Do not deserve property. Have courage. Keep your promises. Do not cheat. Do not steal. Treat others as you want to be treated. Be generous. Be humble. Have patience. Be loyal. Show honesty. How many of you have, one time or another, have said this to your children? Okay, many of you here. How many have you grown up with these phrases? A lot of you here as well. What would you call these? What would you call them? A, a good morals, right? They would just be good morals, right? These are good morals to have in your life. A moral is anything that attempts to define anything, what is right or wrong, what is truth or not, okay, what is good or bad, or how these things affect our thoughts and our actions, right? That's a moral. Every single person in here has a moral compass. Every single person. You have a moral compass somewhere in your brain, in your heart. Morals are great to have. We should teach what morals are. Like, like last week, uh, Matt, when he was younger, got caught stealing what? A piece of candy bar, right? And then what was, what was the consequence of that? He, his dad had taken back to the grocery store, apologized to the owner of the grocery store, and his dad had to pay for the candy bar. And then what? Matt had to pay for the candy bar to his dad, right? Moral of the story, do not steal. Well, I have a similar story, all right? And uh, it has to do with stealing, something about pastors stealing stuff. I don't know. I'm just, all right, so, so I, first grade, all right, I'm, I'm at a grocery store, <laughs> right? I know, this is ridiculous. I'm at a grocery store, and something just came over me. So I took a candy bar, put it in my pocket. I don't know what it was. I could have asked my mom, right? I mean, but something just came over me, took it in my pocket, and, and I went to my mom to stand, stand, stand in a line with her as she was checking out. Something about, my, about moms, though. Not dads. I don't know. Dads don't really have it. 
But moms have this like spidey sense. When your child is doing something wrong, moms have this like tingly thing that goes up and it's like, something's wrong. Okay? So my mom asks me, because her spidey sense is going off now. She goes, hey, what you got in your pocket? <laughs> I remember this vividly. And I said, nothing. I don't know what you're talking about, mom. And she goes, take your hand out of her pocket. <laughs> take my hand out, and there it is, a piece of candy bar. And by this time, guys, I, I'm bawling. Like, I'm, I'm crying. I mean, I'm just, I'm, in, I'm, in, I'm an emotional, like, distress. Okay? And I remember this because my mom had her groceries. She drops it where she is, takes my hand, and drags me. Right? I have no idea where we're going. I'm like, where the heck are we going? I'm just crying, Mom, I'm so sorry. I'm not going to ever, ever do it again. I'm crying, crying. And as she's dragging me outside the grocery store, and we're walking and walking, in a far distance, I see the destination where she's taking me. I see it, and I'm hysterical by now, okay? I'm just, I have, it's like Niagara Falls just everywhere, okay? She takes me to the police station. Okay? <laughs> takes me to the police station. Hey, that could have been enough to scare me, right? No, it didn't end there. She takes me inside to the police station, asks the police officer, officer, he has stolen something. Can you please handcuff him? Okay? <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm dying inside. I'm just like, oh, my goodness. What is going on? I'm like, mom, I'll never do it again. I don't want to go to jail, you know, blah, blah, blah. And moral of the story, okay? Again, what's the moral of the story? Don't steal don't lie, or my mother will put you to the police station, okay? That's the moral of the story. It's, morals are good to have, okay? Morals are good to have. They're, they're good. They teach us to be good human beings. What is right and wrong, and what the law says, you know, how to say thank you, how to be polite, doing good in the world. But then there's also danger side to morals, aren't there? It's, it's when morals become moralism, let me explain what that means a little bit. To put moralism in the simplest terms, it's when our morals become the forefront instead of the salvation of Jesus. It's when morals become the forerunner of our growth in, in emotional and physical and spirituality rather than the salvation of Jesus. It's when we use the morals greater than our relationship with Jesus and what Jesus says to us. See, but modeling, on the other hand, it instills discipleship, okay? Jesus had 12 disciples, correct? He had 12 disciples and many others who are, who are not, you know, named and whatnot. But to be a disciple of Jesus meant that you didn't just learn from Jesus, okay? But you did how he lived life. You lived like him. So when we model for our children, we're actually fulfilling the Great Commission, if you don't... Yeah, we're actually fulfilling the Great Commission. What does the Great Commission say? Go and make disciples of all nation. All nation doesn't mean that you have to fly across the world in an airplane and then go make disciples. No, all nation actually starts with you and your home. Go make disciples of all nation. It starts in your homes. You know, in the United States today, we have access to the Bible more than ever. Right? It's in the palm of your hands. Okay, it's, it's readable. Everybody, you know, here has an access somewhere, more than any other countries out there. Yet we have the fastest decline of biblical knowledge and literacy. And I'm not talking about just Gen Z or the millennials here. I'm talking about generations across the board, whether you're 90, whether you're 10. Psalm 1-1-2 says this, 
How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. This word of God should be something that we keep day and night. See, when was the last time you actually memorized a scripture verse? I'm not talking about John 3.16. I'm not talking about John 3.16. When was the last time you actually know verse by memory? Actually, you sat down to do it. When was the last time you actually read through the whole Bible? You know, if I told you that there's a story in the Bible with a prophet named Elisha who called on two she-bears, right, and had, had, had them maul 42 children because the 42 children made fun of his bald head, would you believe me? Like, would you believe me that that, that, that story is in the Bible? What? That's a slaughter of 42 kids just because they called him a bald head. Would you believe me that there's a guy named Philip in the, Old, uh, in the New Testament in Acts that he actually gets transported from one place to another in a split second? Would you believe me if I told you that there's a story like that? Why am I telling you this? To make you feel guilty? No, not at all, because I'm guilty of it too. But not at all, because our church, like we as a church, we, we as just who wants to make you grow, it's not to, to say these things out of guilt. But we want you to go and make disciples, to model for your children and for the children in the church as well and outside of church. Our desire for us, my desire for us is to grow. If we say that we want the best for our next generation and for our children, we have to understand that it goes beyond teaching the morals. It goes beyond teaching the morals. It goes beyond don't steal. It goes beyond be good. It starts with this book. It starts with this book. How can we teach the next generation the word of God if we ourselves don't know it? It's impossible. So this morning, I'm not here to talk about the how-tos of parenting. And if you came here to hear about how-tos of parenting, sorry. <laughs> sorry to disappoint you. I'm not here to talk about that. My desire this morning is for us to walk away with the understanding, the importance of spiritual growth. Because it's easy to teach morals. It's easy to say things, but spiritual growth takes discipline and it takes consistency. Morals may raise good human beings. They may raise good human beings. But you know what spiritual growth does? Spiritual growth is what raises the next generation of disciples who will go and preach the gospel of Jesus. That's what it does. So what are some ways that they'll, they'll see our growth? Because they have to see it first. They have to, we have to model it first. What can we do to show our growth? Well, we're going to look at James 1, 19 through 27. It's only about seven, uh, seven, eight verses. So we're just going to read it together. Let's read it together. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. 
If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. From the world. If you don't get anything out of today's message, I just want you to rem- uh, just to rem- remember this. This next generation, for them to experience growth, they must see your growth. For this next generation to experience growth, they must see your growth. They have to see it. So this letter that James writes is for the Jewish Christians back in the day, but it's very applicable to us today here as well. To me, James is probably the most practical writer in the Bible. Right? He talks about uh, a lot of good morals, okay? like things like controlling your tongue. That's a very important one. Okay? Being humble. All right? How about not showing favoritism? But what separates him from just being good morals is that his morals come from the salvation of Jesus and his righteousness. Okay? So with that said, this passage contains two ways that we can show our growth. First is hear the word, and second is do the word. Say that with me. Hear the word and do the word. Good. So hear the word and do the word. It's that simple. So let's, let's go hear the word first. Let's look at uh, verses 19 through 20. When it says, My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen. James is saying, listen up, y'all. Okay? You need to listen to what I'm about to say to you because this is important. Everyone should be quick to listen. And we as believers, right, it is our commitment and our duty to listen to the word of God. Amen. It is a commitment and our duty to listen to the Word of God, not just on Sundays, not just on Sundays, but an everyday thing. And don't get the word listen mixed up with the word uh, just by listening your ears, okay? The word listen actually entails with by actually reading it, okay? Listening with your eyes, listening with your ears, listening with your heart, listening with your mind, okay? So this means actually you're reading it. How about slow to speak? Meaning, we let the Word of God marinate in our hearts. After we've listened to the Word of God, we let it marinate before we start speaking. That's why it says slow to speak. We all have our own own opinions here, right? Everybody has an opinion, yeah? Okay, and thoughts? Okay, good. I hope you do, because if you don't, then you're not human, okay? So, we let the Word of God marinate before we speak. Now, but how much of those opinions that we have are founded on biblical foundations. I would say our odds kind of drop down a little bit. That's why James is asking that we are slow to speak after we've read the word and we let it marinate. And slow to anger. And this really refers to uh, verses eight, uh, 1 through 18 in, in the first chapter. And, and when, he, when James writes about the trials, okay? And, and verse 1 says, In your trials, consider it pure joy. James is basically saying, don't be angry with God in your trials and, uh, trials and hardships. Don't be angry with God. Instead, be quick to listen and slow to speak. Because in the listening and in the slow to speak is where you'll grow. So why does and how does anger stunt our growth? Well, look at verse 20. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. See, our anger can be a hindrance to our growth, because God wants to do something in your heart. God wants to do something in your, in, in, in your life, but yet you're so angry with God because of what he's doing, okay, because it's not going your way, because you're not in control, 
that anger can be a hindrance in what God wants to do in your life and how he wants to grow you. Verse 21 says, therefore. I, I love that word. The, the word therefore and the word but. Like those are like my two, two of my favorite words in the Bible. Okay, therefore and but. And you can read therefore as, that being the case, for that reason. For what reason? The reason of being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent. Let me stop here for a moment. If there's one word that I could really describe how we deal or how we, how we view sin, how we view sin is the word numb, like numb. Not, not when your leg goes numb, not like that. But I'm talking about like anesthesia numb. I'm talking about anesthesia. Like we, every day we inject ourselves with this anesthesia and we just kind of go numb with the things around the world and th- the things that we see. We just go numb with the things that we do because we're like, it's only a little bit. It's only a little sin. God will forgive me. It's like we treat sin like it's a fruit fly. Aren't fruit flies annoying? Yeah? Okay. Fruit flies. Let me explain. You know it's in your house, don't you? If there's a fruit fly in your house, you know it's in your house. You see it, okay? You have knowledge of it because you know what fruit flies are. You experience it by going doing this, okay? You experience it. You have the power to get rid of it. A little apple cider vinegar will do, okay? That'll destroy all of your fruit flies. But yet we don't do anything about it because it's so small and it's just going to fly around and we're not going to destroy it. We treat sin like that. Yet, Soon enough, the one fruit fly becomes ten, and the ten becomes an infestation, and it's harder to get rid of. John Trapp, an English, uh, English Puritan and a biblical commentator, said this about what sin is. Sin is devil's vomit, the soul's excrement. I don't know about you, but the visual that I get, it's so nasty. <laughs> it's, it, it's, yeah. It's, it's the devil's vomit? What? And the soul's excrement. See, this moral filth and, and the prevalent evil that James described isn't just talking about sin either. It is anything that we lust after, anything that corrupts our heart, anything that goes against God. And it's, it's a moral view that steers away from salvation. It's this moralism that we have that we think that listening to all the people around us is better than listening to the word of God. So how do we get rid of this, this, this filth and this evil? Well, the word says this, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Humbly receive, and if we can get that uh, up there, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Spurgeon, one of my favorite theologians out there, I love reading his stuff, he said, the first thing then is receive. That word receive is a very instructive gospel word. It is a door through which God's grace enters to us. We're not saved by working, but by receiving. Not by what we give to God, but by what God gives to us and we receive from him. See, we can receive so many things about what is right and what is wrong. We can receive so many self-help, uh, self-help hashtags like uh, be, be yourself, hashtag be yourself, right? Who's heard that one before? Okay, hashtag uh, love is love. Who's heard that one before? Hashtag be your own boss. 
Hashtag do you boo. Okay, like we have so many like hashtags out there. Okay, these are self-help. We can receive those things. We can receive other people's opinions about who we are and what the culture says who we are. But none of them, none of those hashtags, none of those opinions can save your soul. The morals cannot save your soul. It cannot. What saves a soul is the Word of God. The Word of God only. It's the only source that can save the souls of mankind. And not just, the, not just the current situation that you're in, but eternally as well. Eternally as well. See, when we hear the word of God, we must hear it with humility and with submission. Because we have to be willing to hear our own faults. To hear our own faults. For example, um, I'm going to poke some hearts here this morning. But hashtag love is love? That sounds nice, doesn't it? Yeah, love is love. Yeah, let's put it all over Instagram and Facebook. That's like love is love. But love is love is partial truth. It's partial truth. You know what love is? The whole picture of love. Love is what, love is what God did for humanity. Love is what God did, uh, what Jesus did on the cross. Love, it, love did not go to the cross so that we can keep living the same way as we've been living before. Love went to the cross so that we wouldn't have to. Love is transformation. Love is holiness. That's why James says, humbly, humbly receive the word of God. Because I can guarantee you right now, things you read in here, you're not going to agree with most of the times. You won't. Because it's offensive. Because it goes against the grain. Because it goes against the culture of what, what today's culture is saying. It's offensive. And I struggle with it every day because I read it. I'm like, ah, oh, man, am I really reading this correct? Is this really what God is saying? But I have to believe it. There's a deep commitment in my heart to believe it because I know that the word is truth and it will not waver. The word of God wasn't written to appease our mind or our, our formed opinions. Rather, it's the word of God that shows us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not morals. It's not your hashtags that show the way, the truth, and the life. It's, it's, not, it's not your good deeds that show the way, the truth, and the life. It's Jesus who shows the way, the truth, and the life. So how can we show the next generation our spiritual growth? First, by humbly listening and hearing and reading the word, spending time in and with the word. Secondly, we show it by being doers of the word. Verse 22 says this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. James is saying that if you heard the word, right, if you heard the word, well, go do it now. Go do it now. If you don't do it, you're, you're a fool. Yes, the Bible calls you a fool, okay? If you listen to the word, you have to go do it now. If you don't, then you are a fool. Yeah, I love the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 7. Okay? Uh, it's, it's the last Sermon on the Mount that he gives, and it's about the Sermon of a house built on a rock. You guys remember this one? Right? A house built on a sand. Okay, what does Jesus say? Let me just shorten the phrase a little bit. He says, if you hear the word and you do the word, you're like a house built on a rock. 
Waves come, winds come, rains fall, monsoons come. Guess what? Your house is going to stand. Because why? You're founded on solid foundation. But if you hear the word and you don't do anything about it, you're like a house built on sand. Waves come, winds come, rain comes, a little bit of rain comes, and your house is gone because you have no foundation. And, and I love that he gives it as a last sermon because, remember, he's been preaching for like three chapters now, okay? And it's been a long, if you think 30 minutes is a long time, you should have been there when Jesus was there. I'm just saying, okay? So it was a long day, and Jesus finally goes, listen, I've taught you all these things. I've given you these instructions. Now go and do it. Go and do it. Let me ask you, out of all the Bible passages and all the sermons that we've heard, that you have said, that you've heard say, give to the needy. How many have actually practiced that? I'm guilty of it too. I'm not talking about giving to an organization to give to the needy because that's like saying, hey, I don't want to do the work. I'm just going to give it to you so you can do the legwork for me. I'm talking about actually giving to the needy. How many have actually prayed daily? I'm not talking about meal prayers around your home, not sitting around in your home table and saying, God, thank you for this food. Great prayer. Thank you for instilling that in your household. But how many actually pray on your knees and actually cry out to God and say, Lord, I need you every day? How many of us actually love our neighbors? Again, guys, I'm, I'm guilty of this too. I'm not saying that I'm perfect. Sometimes I think I don't want to love my neighbors. I don't. I really don't. But if we hear about loving our neighbors and if we don't put it into practice, then I'm a fool. I'm a fool. How many of us want to see people with depression and anxiety set free? What are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? How many of us want to see people restored? What are we doing about it? What actions are we taking? See, Jesus did not come on this earth just to observe sickness, to observe darkness, to observe just uh, uh, mental illness. He didn't say, I'm, I'm here, and I'm just going to observe, and I'm just going to go back up, and uh, y'all figure it out. No, Jesus came here on this earth to heal the sick, to restore the broken, to bring light into darkness, and point everyone back to God. And I love these next uh, couple of verses. Let me just read it for us. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, walks away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. Okay, we're going to do a little exercise here. Everyone take out your phones. Okay, what? Taking out your phones on a Sunday church morning? Oh! Okay, so take out your phones. Open up your camera app. All right? Everyone open up your camera app. Put it to selfie mode. All right, everybody put it to selfie mode. Okay, take a picture of yourself. Take a picture of yourself. All right, perfect. Good, good, good. All right, look at yourself for two seconds. Look at yourself. All right, turn your phones off. Turn your phones off. Okay, you have 10 seconds. Turn to the person next to you and describe what you look like. Go. Go. Four. Three, two, one. All right. I mean, it's really hard to forget what you look like. I, I know what I look like. I know I have a scraggly beard and kind of thin mustache. Okay, I know I need a haircut. 
okay? I know I've got earrings on, okay? And I know that I need some trimming on my eyebrows a little bit because they're a little bushy, okay? <laughs> all right? Men, take care of yourself, all right? Um, I know that uh, my hair, okay, if you didn't know, if you want to come look at closely after service, you can. I have red hair. Like, I'm Asian. What the heck? Why do I have Asian? Like, red hair doesn't make any sense. I have red hair. Like, I know what I look like. It's hard to forget what you look like. If you live 90 years, guess what? You've been looking in the mirror for almost 90 years. If you lived 10 years, you've been looking at yourself for almost, almost 10 years. That's what you do every morning. Don't you think about it? You look at yourself every morning. It's hard to forget what you look like. David Guzik, a Bible commentator, said this, and I love this quote, okay? He says this, A healthy person looks in the mirror to do something, not just to admire the image. Some people may. Okay, some people may. That's okay. Okay, admire yourself. It's okay. God made you beautiful and magnificent. All right? Even so, a healthy Christian looks into God's word to do something about it. A healthy Christian looks into God's word not just to store only facts and information, but to do something about it. So what does a healthy Christian look like? Well, that quote right there explains everything. But James also says it too. Look at verse 25. But the one who looks intently into, intently in Greek, that's like it's really just thoroughly examining every word in the Bible. The perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer who works. This person will be blessed in what he does. James is saying this verse explains what a healthy Christian looks like and should be. Those who listen to his word and those who put it into practice. So where do we start? Where do we start putting these practices, of things that we've read? Well, in verse 26, verse 27, summarizes. Let's read it together. It says this. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God, the Father, is this. To look after orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Verse 26, basically God says, James says that your walk with God is useless if it's not shown in the way you live and the way you treat others. To put it in simple terms, if you're going to talk to talk, you got to walk the walk. If you're going to talk to talk, you got to walk the walk. And, and to explain it more plainly to us Southerners here, okay, I say us Southerners because I live in the South too, guys, all right? To us Southerners is this. Don't let your spiritual life, your walk with Jesus, be a Southern yes. Don't let your spiritual life and your walk with Jesus be a Southern yes. Let your yeses be yes. Let your noes be no. Let your talk be the talk and let your walk be the walk. And in verse 27, just James gives us an example of where we should start and who God is pleased with. God is pleased with those who are willing to look after the orphans, those who are willing to look after the distressed widows. Not just them, but to keep oneself pure from this defiled world. Remember this? To experience growth 
they must see your growth. For this next generation to experience growth, to experience what discipleship is, to experience what modeling is, they must see your growth first. You can't just say, read your Bible. You can't just say, go to church. You can't just say, go pray. It's easy to say those things, but to actually live it out, man, that is a commitment on your part as a parent. That is a commitment on your part as to see the next generation grow into a mature man and woman of God. Your children must see that you're reading the word, that you're listening to the word. Your children must see that you're actually putting the word into practice. You know, I remember growing up and uh, watching, my, watching my parents. I remember uh, every time I would come home, uh, it's the same mother, okay, who took me to the police station, all right? <clears throat> I remember my mother praying every single day. The first thing I heard after I came home, when I opened those doors, were her prayers. Were her prayers. I'm not talking about just like silent prayers. I'm talking about prayers, like out loud. Not because she was having a hard time or going to trials. No, because she loved Jesus. Because she wanted to be that as a discipline. My mom, my mother never had to tell me once in, in my life, said, you need to pray. You need to pray. Do you want to know how, why I know that the, the importance of prayer? Because my mother modeled it for me. She didn't have to tell me once that I need to pray. She showed it to me. Because of that, I know the importance of prayer. Because of that, I know the power of prayer. If you, I mean, if you hear this, I, if I had the time, I would tell you stories after stories of the miracles that God has done in our lives. It's, it's, it's amazing. I know the power of prayer because of what my mom showed me. Do you want to know how I know the importance of why, why reading the Bible is so important? Every time I wake up in the morning, I would see my parents sitting around the kitchen table and with their Bibles open. Not their newspaper, not their magazines, not their phones. They, they were reading, they were sitting around and reading the Bible together. They never had to tell me once, hey, go read your Bible. I knew it was important because they showed it to me. The, the, this book was op always open. If I go home now today, this book will be open on the kitchen table. I can guarantee you. I can guarantee you. Because of their modeling, I understood the importance of prayer and reading the Word. Now, am I saying that my parents are perfect? I mean, she took me to the police station, guys. Come on. Like, <laughs> like they almost had me handcuffed. Like, no, they're not perfect. Like, they're not perfect. But they showed me the way. That would be the greatest benefit. And it's because of them that I'm here today standing. That I have this passion for ministry. I have this passion to teach people. It's because of them. They didn't have to say one thing. They just showed it to me. And I can do that same thing for Milo, my little kid. And again, he can do that for his children. So what is your child seeing you do at home? What is your child seeing you do at home? What is your child hearing in your home? 
What is this next generation of churches? As they walk around the room, around in our lobby, what are they hearing and what are they seeing? Are TV shows more talked about in the lobby of our church than our walk with Jesus? How many times have, you, have we asked the children that are going, hey, how is your relationship with Jesus going? How is it going? Are, are sports more passionate in your home than the Word of God? There's something wrong with that picture. I'm not saying you can't like sports. I love sports. Go Chiefs, right? So I had to plug it in there, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> but if the sports is more passionate than about the Word of God, then what are we doing? Our hobbies taking up more of your time than reading of the Word. Our studies, your, the school studies that you, you, you want your children to do well, are those more superior than having them to read the Word and praying? We cannot expect this generation to become disciples of Jesus if we aren't modeling for them. We can't expect them to be great. We can't expect them to go and preach the gospel if we ourselves are not modeling because they don't have anyone to model after. Not only that, you can't, let me just touch upon this a little bit. You cannot, parents, hear me out. You cannot expect the church, your local church, to take the place of your parenthood, to take the place of your, your child's spiritual growth. You cannot we as a church, we're here to partner with you, to walk alongside of you, but we cannot take over your parenthood. You are the primary example that your child sees of what spiritual growth looks like in your life and in your home life as well. So to everyone in this room who desires to see the next generation flourish in their relationship with Jesus, my challenge to you today is this. As we finish this monkey see, monkey do series, and this has been the same challenge since week one, is to teach and direct your child good morals. Do it. Teach them. Direct them. Please. Direct them to be their best selves. But, but, model for them what listening to the word looks like, what hearing to the word looks like. Model for them what being doers of the word looks like. Model for them who, what Jesus would do. Model for them what prayer is, what sacrifice is. See, everyone in here, God has given you the greatest calling in life, and it's this, the calling of raising up his sons and daughters for his kingdom and for his glory. That's our responsibility as believers. That's our responsibility for this next generation, for this next generation of disciples, for this next generation of Jesus followers. Let's pray together. Father, we want to First, acknowledge, Lord, our, our complacency and, and just not caring, Lord, um, even for myself, Lord. But God, help us. God, give us the discipline that we need to do, the discipline that we need to instill within our own lives first, 
to model for this next generation. That directing and teaching them, Lord, is important, but it's not enough. Help us understand that. Because, Lord, modeling is, is raising the disciples. So, God, give us that calling, Lord. Wake us of that calling. To understand, Lord, that this is not about just the immediate moment, but this is about the future. When we're gone, Lord, we, we want to have raised a generation who will bring the gospel of Jesus to all mankind. That everyone on this earth will have heard the gospel through this next generation. Because that is our prayer. Convict us this morning, Lord. Convict us to do better. Convict us to model after you. God, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.